Hey Sudeep, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for taking time. Thank you so much for having me, Natraj. Uh, so, I'm super excited to have you on the conversation uh, because you know a lot of things are happening right now, uh, both in venture and public markets. So it's an interesting time to talk to a, a venture investor uh, during these couple of weeks. Uh, but before getting into you know venture capital and investing, uh, can you talk about a little bit? Obviously, you went to IIT KGP, which is uh, one of the well-known uh, schools in India. Uh, I always joke around with my friends at IIT KGP that there is you know PayPal mafia and there is uh, IIT mafia and then there is IIT KGP mafia, um, uh, which is also its an own uh, little mafia. Um, but can you talk a little bit about you know your early you know education and uh, before in moving into venture capital? Yeah, by the way, uh, I think you're right on about the IIT KGP mafia. You know, I, I think that is the case because it is the best IIT. You know. For sure, my other IIT campus friends will kill me, uh, but you know that is a fact. But it is the oldest and largest still, I believe. So yeah, there is a there is a very strong connection within the alumni there. So yeah, very quickly, <clears throat> I actually um, I grew up between Middle East and India. Uh, grew up in boarding school, uh, so I went to boarding school when I was like nine, um, and then um, then as you said, I went to IIT for my college came to US uh, directly to do uh, my grad school at Georgia Tech. Couple of years into my grad school, I actually dropped out to do my first startup. So we were working on something really interesting <clears throat> as part of our research project. Very coincidentally, my um, professor at Georgia Tech and also my co-founder of that first company is actually coming over for dinner uh, just tonight. So it's quite coincidental. But anyway, so we ended up starting a company, we ended up raising venture money. Um, after you know, uh, a fair amount of time, we realized you know, we were not going to hit the scale that we all had hoped for. So we ended up selling that company to another uh, private company. And then I was a product manager for some time in Silicon Valley. I went back to business school. I went to Penn Wharton. Towards the end of my business school, I ended up starting another company with a couple of my friends. So this one, uh, fortunately, we grew to several million in ARR. Um, and then we had a couple of different uh, private companies wanting to buy us. We took one of the offers uh, and it worked out actually really well um, because you know, it was a, uh, it was, we did not really raise external venture money and kind of grew it by bootstrapping. So that was my second foray into entrepreneurship. Um, and then I switched to venture investing about nine plus years ago. Uh, in that whole time, <clears throat> I, I have been at uh, a few different firms, but what I have always done is I have only invested in enterprise infrastructure companies. So in the past, I have invested in companies like Heptio, which was a Kubernetes company uh, VMware bought very quickly uh, for a pretty decent exit. And then companies like Temporal and Serverless and Exabeam, which um, when we invested was a pretty small company. It's around 3 billion in market cap today in the private market. Spot Nana, which is a travel infrastructure company also doing pretty well, fortunately. And then um, <clears throat> um, I also uh, used to attend the board meetings and you know had a lot of first-hand experiences with companies like Databricks and Mesosphere and DigitalOcean in the early days. So yeah, all my life I have only invested in enterprise infrastructure, and that that's what uh, I continue to do here. Do here at Decibel too. So taking a step back, uh, you know, once you you know wound down your startup, uh, what was that decision that drove you to you know get into venture capital? Uh, yeah, um, so you know I, and to this day I still do not rule out doing another startup. Just to be clear. But I think, you know, for me, venture was literally the uh, other side of entrepreneurship. Um, and I think as I was doing my company, uh, especially second time, I definitely, you know, felt like there were things I was doing better because, you know, I had done it before. I could see some of the patterns. And I think I was fairly motivated to put that into action where I was just not working with one company or working on one company, but I was working with a, in a number of early stage companies where I could potentially help uh, work with some great people and of course learn along the way. So 
the other, you know, the other thing I would say is, you know, I've always been very intellectually curious, and that's something I really enjoy being uh, working in venture capital because, I mean, every day you get educated by really smart people who are thinking, working on ideas that, you know, and definitely as some of them will change the world. Um, so I enjoy that, that part a lot too. It's sort of like, I enjoy that part at the same time, I can bring something of value to these people who have not been through startups before or have not seen the movie in a five different ways. So I kind of enjoy those convergence of those two. And I kind of see my um, life in venture capital more as a lifestyle thing than as a career, because I really uh, like enjoy doing it 24 seven. Also, um, I think the, the point you talked about, you can influence or like you, you get an exposure to multiple companies, multiple ideas. I think that's the exciting part of uh, being an investor in general. Uh, so you went on to work at A16Z uh, and did enterprise investing there. Um, can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of being a partner? Because I think what happened in the last couple of years is uh, everyone is called as a VC. Uh, that sort of, uh, you know, who is it? But there are obviously different incentives for different people working at VCs, right? Uh, VC firms. Um, and you have from associates to partners to general partners. Can you talk about your role and what did it actually meant being a partner at A16Z? So, um, and I think there's fairly public knowledge. Uh, even though everyone was called a partner at A16Z, and internally also everyone was called a partner. It wasn't like, you know, there was one version outside, one version inside. The roles were different. The roles were a lot more traditional in terms of, you know, kind of uh, associate, principal, general partner. Um, when I worked there, and that firm has changed since then, yeah. just to be there as well. Uh, I think they have more uh, gradations internally uh, than they used to. When I was there, uh, there was really like two kinds of roles. One was the general partners. And then there was the, uh, they called them, uh, called uh, everyone else deal partner, but it was basically think of it as you are supporting uh, one or multiple general partners. So uh, when I was there, I was really supporting Peter Levin, uh, who was their enterprise infrastructure uh, lead. Uh, I was also supporting Ben a little bit, Ben Horowitz uh, and Mark Anderson on a couple of uh, more deal, uh, specific deals, but I was largely uh, Peter's uh, right-hand person. Um, and in that role, you know, you basically, you know, kind of uh, work on everything that a typical, you know, I would say senior associate principal does uh, or a non-partner does, which is Obviously you look, you know, you basically try to find great opportunities and then you spend a lot of time evaluating those. And then I think the other thing that was really uh, cool about my role at ASSNZ was uh, uh, I used to go to about a dozen board meetings as part of that role. So, um, and it just, you know, kind of observing some of these companies uh, firsthand um, across, you know, dozen or so different uh, companies was pretty uh, interesting. So that, you know, so I, I used to go to the, um, I was not a board member, but I used to go to the board uh, board meetings of Databricks, for example, and you kind of see how uh, the success they have become, but I've also seen them in the first, you know, two, three, four years, and it was pretty interesting to take away some lessons from that. So yeah, that was the role. Um, I would say, um, just, you know, kind of uh, fast forwarding a bit, uh, at Decibel, for example, and I'm happy to give you a quick intro of what we do, we are really trying to, build a real partner only form. Um, and there are, you know, we are not the only one. There is a, obviously an example of Benchmark doing it very successfully. Um, the reason we are building a partner only form, which kind of touches on your question a little bit is, we feel like, you know, uh, if you take any venture uh, investor's job, there is, and broadly defined, there are two parts, right? One is like you find and evaluate great companies, make your, make your investment decision, and then the second part is post-investment, you help them, right? So we feel like on both sides, if you delegate too much, um, you kind of uh, either shortchange yourself or shortchange the portfolio company after investment. So we tend to believe in this model, and I'm not saying that's the only model uh, that works, but we tend to believe in this model where uh, a part, as a partner, you are responsible for the end-to-end -end investment decision which means not only finding great companies, but you know, really evaluating uh, it thoroughly and not delegating it to another junior uh, person. 
So you are just you know, building your conviction so much better and so much deeper. So once you decide to invest, <clears throat> similarly, you bring that strong conviction to the table and then you, you are much better suited to help them because you are really the person you know, uh, that uh, is responsible for the company's success. So we believe in that model at Decibel, um, but again, you know, I mean, if we grow too big, you know, that may or may not scale, but we are not there yet. So, I mean, I think that also brings up this interesting question, right? Where in last two years, we've seen a lot of firms go really big and hire a lot of people. And even the fund sizes have grown, I don't know, 5X or 3X, uh, you know, the usual, I think benchmark is probably an exception. They've kept their new fund size lower than, uh, you know, what other funds have been doing. I think probably A16Z uh, was almost on running on all cylinders in all sectors, right? Um, how do you see, I mean, it, this is probably generally directed towards the ecosystem itself, like, because I think 10 years or five years back, the funds were small, you had like 10 partners, I mean, different uh, either GPs or, uh, you know, other roles, and, you know, you're just focused on one particular thesis and you're picking companies, and that used to be the case, and I think I've heard Mark talk about somewhere about, you know, almost planning A16Z as like, you know, CA, uh, the Hollywood agency company. Um, and sort of bringing in all sorts of things into the venture company. And it's a different way of, I think, building uh, a VC company altogether. Um, how do you see, um, you know, where we are going in terms of just uh, the structure of a VC firm? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's frankly, it's something <clears throat> we at Decibel think a lot about. Um, so I think, you know, what, uh, I mean, you, you know this very well, when the venture industry started, it was much more of an, artisanal kind of industry where, you know, <clears throat> you would really work with a specific partner at a specific firm who would help you with all aspects of business. I think over the years and particularly over the last, I would say five, six, seven years, virtually pretty much, you know, since I started in venture, you know, it has only uh, gotten that way where there has been a clear divergence between two groups of firms. So today you probably will see there is a large group of firms, what I would call our company scalers. So these are the you know, kind of firms that write, you know, that, that raise large funds. They also write large checks as a result. And I think their best value is once you have reached some kind of scale as a founder to take their money and to take their resources and you know, go from there. So these tend to be the company scalers. We also see a second group, you know, kind of again going back to the roots of the venture industry, which are uh, what I would call company builders. Um, so, company scalar VCs and company builder VCs. So, company builder VCs tend to be a lot more specialized. They tend to obviously invest in early stage, and they tend to be very uh, focused on every company they invest in because they are trying to get that company from inception to product market fit or early stages of scale. And I think that divergence will stay uh, for quite some time uh, because it's just the need, you know, uh, the market need that drives it. I have been a technical founder twice and I only work with technical founders. I can give it to you in writing that throwing in a, a ton of money uh, at a technical founder or founding team in the earlier stages is not going to solve a single problem they have. You know, yeah, they might buy a very expensive cappuccino machine, that's about it. You know, but it's not the um, money is not going to solve their problem. What is really going to solve their problem is how do you help them? You know, kind of navigate the path to product market fit. So that's why you are seeing the seeing this divergence um, in the venture industry. Naturally, there it's a smaller group on the company uh, building side because the fund sizes are smaller. You know, you need to be very specialized. Um, and you know, I'll put in a, a little bit of a. Uh, shout out to our firm at Decibel because we are all in on the specialist uh, company builder strategy. So, I mean, we are, obviously we are bringing in more capital, but the reason people work with us is we are bringing in specialist expertise, but also we are bringing in specialized founder services. And this is something, you know, I would say you see, you know, some other firms do too, but when you do it in a very specialized way, it becomes a lot more compelling. Uh, the last thing I would say, you know, uh, you to really be successful on the company building side, you cannot, you know, keep raising large firms and be able to really impact fools, right? I, I see that group staying, you know, nimble and smaller. And yeah, Benchmark is, of course, the leading example of that. 
I think also, uh, what do you think about then? I think there's another category of investors which are like crossover funds like Kato or Tiger. Like, what is their role going to be uh, in looking forward? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I put them in the company scalar side, but towards the tail end or um, uh, kind of the end of the spectrum on that. Look, I mean, they, um, you know, someone like Tiger, you know, they actually uh, feel a market need um, that obviously existed, which is, you know, they, they are really great at, you know, funding companies that have figured it out, that have the team, all they need is the capital and they need it at, you know, in a way that is less frictionful and so on. So I think that part of the market certainly <clears throat> will exist and will be catered by, you know, those firms. I think it is a little bit of a question, particularly given the market turbulence that we all are seeing, uh, how active that market will stay. I think, you know, I mean, this happens in every cycle when there is money is plentiful, you know, and things are easy, like, you know, fundraising is easy uh, and so on. I think discipline sometimes, you know, can be a bit, you know, lax. So I think, you know, and I see around you know, a lot of companies uh, around uh, and us, you know, my friends, networks, and so on. I would say a number of companies in the last couple of years have raised money from the tigers and produce of the world at valuations and at sizes that are probably a couple of notches, you know, uh, ahead of the, where the business was. So I think you know, going forward, uh, you will see less of that, but still, that market need exists. Actually, uh, it does. I think, uh, I think what happened was, I think the price matters sort of like that went away for a while there in last 12 to 18 months, the entry price matters. And it also played into this notion that the markets are much, you know, much larger than what we thought based on our exit scenarios that we've seen. But when the market caps go down in public markets, then that sort of thought is now challenged that. Yeah, not all market caps or not all markets are as huge. They're still huge, but not as huge as, you know, what we thought. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I would add one thing, which is, I think we all can buy into the fact that, you know, software as a sector, um, as a market is only going to grow larger. I mean, that is independent of any short-term turbulence in the public market. It just, you know, we all see that every business now is a software business. Every company is driving digital transformation in some ways. So again, these are big words, but you kind of sense that, you know, like the need to buy software is only going to uh, grow. So yes, I think the market, you know, um, sizes are going to go, uh, going to go even bigger. That's for sure. But at the same time, you know, I think you know investing at the end of the day is about building great companies, but also like you know uh, being disciplined about your uh, like you said entry valuation because at the end of the day, people who give us money who trust us with with their money our our investors we need to show them returns right so I think you know that discipline anytime you have some you know lacks uh, or you know kind of like a critical you know, attitude in that discipline it will come back to bite you particularly when the markets turn on you so i think in the last two years that has happened a lot i think you'll see some tightening of the belts there but overall i think you know it just it just makes sense that there will be a lot more venture funded companies uh, company number of companies in software than there was 10 years ago it just you know kind of the natural thing to do i think in that sentence the point i would like to highlight or the word i would like to highlight is software i think we also sort of tend to deviate and thought every venture investment is a software investment it's not it, we also have this now a bucket of investing which is not really pure software investors so they're software enabled business like yeah. enterprise software i would say is almost like the pure form of software investing it could get to um, but and that's the almost like the return profile you're looking at very well fits with software uh, because you're looking at 100x or you're making a fund work at 100x exit. Uh, so that kind of non-linearity doesn't exist in all businesses. Um, so I think we almost uh, lost a little way in terms of like considering every investment 
uh, as a venture returnable investment. I think that also has been happening more that hey, any startup is not non-linear, right? Because just we're calling it a startup, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will give a non-linear return. There are no non-linear outcomes or factors that are generating a non-linearity in this. No, you're hundred percent right. I cannot disagree with that. I mean, the venture model really works well and uh, the return on every additional dollar turns to an exponential curve, right? So that's when the venture model really works. In the early days, you're obviously incurring all the cost of product development. And then yeah. once you hit that product market fit, once you hit that scale, it should, you know, kind of become like an sort of an exponential or nonlinear curve, right? So yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, my lens um, is enterprise software. So that's the world I live in. And I'm very bullish about that overall market expanding, yeah. um, notwithstanding some, you know, turbulence in near term. So from a 6 you went to work at uh, Madrona, which is obviously based in Seattle and pretty iconic. I think there were also investors in Amazon, I believe. Uh, so what was your experience working there? Tell me a, a little bit about, you know, working at Madrona. Um, it's a great firm. Um, and I think even more importantly, it's a great group of people. Um, so I think Madrona, and it started as a Seattle firm, but I think, you know, uh, what is really interesting about, you know, what they have is like, and you probably know this living in Seattle, like Seattle is, you know, really, uh, if it doesn't happen, you know, there's something wrong, uh, for sure, but it should be kind of the, you know, next, you know, uh, massive tech ecosystem, given the talent that is there now that has moved in over the last you know, decade, right? Thanks to you know, obviously Amazon, Microsoft, but also all the companies, other companies that are now either headquartered there or you know, have a, the, their largest engineering office there. I think the strength of Madrona is kind of the network and connections they have into all of that ecosystem. So yeah, I mean, I, um, um, I actually uh, had a really fun time at Madrona for a whole host of reasons, but particularly for the people. Um, and I also had a lot of fun, you know, kind of, uh, connecting or kind of introducing Madrona to some of the, what I would call younger up and comer, uh, founder types in Seattle. Um, because I think, you know, like, as I kind of, uh, I mean, I, my family is originally from Seattle, so I have a lot of family connections, but once I started you know, really, uh, being in Seattle professionally, one thing I realized was how many engineers who are probably like, you know, in mid twenties to mid thirties, you know, like, you know, uh, kind of in that demographic who, you know, might be working for Amazon, might be working for you know, Tableau or whatever, but are thinking about starting a company. And for Madrona, like I kind of drove that, which is like making those connections with, you know, those kind of folks. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, like, you know, as a team, as a firm, it was just an amazing experience. Um, and you probably would ask this question anyway, so let me just preempt it. I still cannot believe I left Madrona, honestly, uh, or, you know, um, because I had so much fun, but uh, uh, I can tell you why I read this well in a, in, a, in a sentence, but it's basically like sometimes you leave your Amazon job to start a company because you just have that entrepreneurial itch. So that, that's really what brought me to Decibel. So yeah, tell me more about, you know, uh, what Decibel is doing and, you know, uh, what is your thesis behind starting Decibel uh, and more about it. Yeah, so Decibel is an early stage venture fund. Um, we do seed and series A's, but we are highly specialized. We only invest in enterprise infrastructure companies. Um, and the whole idea of Decibel is we, we basically invest in technical founders that are building technical products that are being sold to technical users and customers. So think of us as you know, investing in the technical stack. So we are not the consumer software uh, investor, we are not the FinTech investor, but we are you know, investors in modern engineering tools and dev tools and cloud native infrastructure and machine learning ops and data infrastructure and so on. And we have a very strong focus on uh, what I'd also call uh, community-led companies, community-led community businesses. So think open source, think bottom-up adoption, those kind of businesses, because that's what, uh, what, that's what is happening in our world in the enterprise infrastructure. People do not, I mean, 
people are mostly moving to a model where they are they use a product, they get value out of the product before they even decide to buy the product. So that's kind of a strong thesis at Decibel. Now, what we are trying to build is basically the firm that we wish we had when we were technical founders. So at Decibel, you know, we have three investment partners and two operating partners. We all have been technical founders and we kind of saw this need also working with technical founders where there's a pattern of need in terms of help the you know, technical founder needs in the early stages. It is not so much you know, building the company, uh, sorry, building the product or building the technology. It is you know, how do you position, about, position the product? How do you talk about the product? How do you think about who is getting benefits and how do you amplify those? How do you find the first you know, 10, 20 early adapters? How do you really recruit the first 20 engineers? So at Decibel, we are actually building all those founder services uh, very uh, deliberately. So we actually hired the former CMO of Twilio to help our technical founders with product positioning, product narrative, product marketing. We hired a phenomenal BD uh, partner to help our companies find the first you know, 30, 40, 50 customers. Like in a year, we are making 50 to 100 introductions uh, for those companies to find their early adapters. We are bringing on a recruiting partner to help hire engineers, not C-level folks, but help hire engineers. But we are doing all of that in a very specialized manner only for enterprise infra, uh, because we believe that 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 really you know builds great companies. So yeah, I mean um, it's a uh, I mean in terms of fund size, you know if anyone is interested, it's a uh, uh, our first fund was two twenty five, our second fund which is brand new is uh, two seventy five, um, and then you know. Founders partner with us, not because of our check sizes. It is because of the help we bring to the table. And it goes back to your earlier point about you know, where we sit uh, in the VC spectrum. We are firmly, firmly in the company building specialist uh, end of the spectrum. So obviously you have, um, you've seen a lot of enterprise software companies. Uh, where do you see uh, opportunities right now? Because, you know, in databases or in infrastructure or, you know, uh, we've seen from VMware to the Kubernetes uh, evolution, we've seen you know, SQL to NoSQL uh, evolution, uh, we've seen, you know, uh, the code as an infrastructure with companies like HashiCorp. Uh, where do you see, uh, you know, the next generation, you know, technical companies in either enterprise software or, you know, cloud infrastructure or you know, even if you think developers as a customers, like uh, where are you seeing most of the you know gaps and products come from? I mean, it's a it's a obviously a long conversation, and you know we certainly have you know deep convictions in some areas more than others. I'll give you maybe in a couple of maybe one example to begin with. We actually uh, very strongly believe that the number of developers and you know it, it's a belief i think you know most people will agree with the number of developers or at least the number of people who code uh, is only going to grow so if you really look at how application development is today it is a very specialist job still and particularly with you know building scalable applications like distributed applications it is a very specialist job you mentioned kubernetes you mentioned you know containers, Docker. I mean, think about all the various pieces that you need to put together before a developer can write a single line of business logic. So today, every company has to invest in platform engineering team just to pull all of those things together. It doesn't matter where, where your infrastructure is running, Amazon or GCP or Azure or somewhere else. It doesn't matter. You still have to do all of that work. Um, so we feel that, you know, there has to be better development platforms that kind of abstracts away um, all of it or most of it so that the developer who is coming along, uh, coming through the door, it can focus on writing the business logic and not focus on putting together all the database interfaces and the CI CDs and the logging and the monitoring and the observability. So we are actually uh, pretty uh, focused on that. Um, essentially, how do you make backend application development seamless and frictionless. There's a very good example of a company doing that on the front end uh, called Vercel. Um, is there a play like that for the backend application development? So that's like a strong thesis and you know, we are kind of focused on. 
Um, and then I think, you know, there are like so many others. Uh, I'm trying, I, I mean, I'll pick, you know, maybe one more example. So, which is like, you know, we, we have been, you know, uh, going at it for quite some time, but we still feel like the whole notion of data infrastructure is still not solved. And it is still like, you know, you see so many companies, so many projects going at it. It still feels like we are stuck in the pre-Siebel, uh, pre-Oracle days of databases when it comes to data infrastructure. Everyone that is putting together a data infrastructure has to put together the different pieces, you know, stitch them together, run them at scale, monitor them, all of that, manage that. So we haven't made a bet, but it's sort of like, if there was a magical data, phase, uh, data uh, sorry, data infrastructure solution out there that could abstract away all of that uh, and kind of, you know, take away all the pain of data engineering that the data engineering teams go through, I think that will be a pretty uh, substantial opportunity. So again, that's something we haven't invested in yet, but you know, it, it continues to be a very strong thesis for us. Because again, like we tie all of these things to macro trend. The first one I mentioned is tied to the trend that the number of developers is only going to grow, but the sophistication of that expanding developer base is going to go down. So you need something there. Similarly on the data infrastructure side, the uh, amount and volume and you know, velocity and in a variety of data is only going to grow. So you need something to really you know, scale with that. So again, these are like two examples of ideas. Yeah, I, I really love the idea of um, serving developers uh, and looking at it that lens, uh, because I think the value you can generate if you're serving developers, because there are so few of them, uh, I mean, in terms of, uh, not absolute numbers, but at least on percentage wises, uh, you can really create in very interesting companies. One company I can think of is like Educator, which is also like Seattle's company. Fahim's, Fahim's company, yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, and they did a really interesting job of you know solving the career uh, problem and learning problem for developers, which which is sort of like all out there, uh, you know, on the internet, but they pieced it together so well uh, that it makes a very compelling product for developers to use it. Uh, and for them, the return on investment of even, and that's not a cheap subscription also, like it's in a absolute terms, it's a pretty costly subscription, but the return on investment a developer gets out of that platform is way higher than, you know, what he is, uh, you know, investing into. Uh, so that's one good example. And I think uh, one of the points that you also mentioned, I think is about abstraction. I think we've always continuously been evolving to abstract away things uh, in technology, I think, Cloud is a great example for that. We are just abstracting and uh, it's abstracting. And then if one person solves a problem well, everyone should be able to access it. I think that has always been sort of like the underlying philosophy of uh, technology is to like, once we have solved, then I, I should just have a library or a technology out there that everybody can access it. So in a lot of ways, all of these companies that are, are essentially running a scalable service which mm -hmm. ideally should be in some form, you know, be out there ready to go. Uh, at least, for, you know, you can categorize these things. We have done that in some areas, but in most of the areas we haven't done that, right? Yeah. Um, so we have like five streaming services. Why shouldn't we have like a one-click service where we where we can start a decent streaming service? I, I'm not even asking a Netflix scale, uh, you know, streaming service. Like why can't I just start a streaming service which does the basic stuff, uh, right? hundred percent. I think, you know, abstraction is a key macro trend. And then I think, you know, the other thing is, you know, you look into any large company today and a large tech company, right? I mean, you take your favorite company, right? Microsoft or Google or Amazon, I mean, or Facebook. I mean, you look into them and you see like the investment they have made and kind of, uh, internally abstracting away some of those pain. Like when you walk into Microsoft, I'm sure you're not going and tinkering with the you know, lowest details uh, of a platform, you know, uh, whatever development platform you guys are using, right? So you see that and they have invested heavily. Now there's a mass market that will never be able to invest that kind of resources, right? So how do you build something that is still functionally useful and valuable to that mass market? 
but they don't have to take the pain of building something like that, not only building, but running it at scale uh, like that, you know, uh, on a daily basis. So I think that's a thesis that applies to so many different areas of our enterprise, you know, investment, um, that, you know, just, you know, it's a common thread across a lot of, a lot of our things. So you've also seen, a, you know, a good number of acquisitions, both as an investor and obviously one, a couple with your being a founder. What, what do you see the common threads? Why do investment, sorry, acquisitions happen? Uh, and what are the reasons the company that is acquiring is really looking for? And so sort of uh, what can, you know, founders do in terms of setting up themselves for acquisitions? I mean, I know it's obviously not your, uh, you can't really predict these outcomes, but uh, what do you see some of the things, you know, the through line across all these, uh, you know, experiences that will say, hey, these are some of the things that worked out well versus, you know, uh, that didn't. So, you know, I would say acquisitions come in two categories, right? You are being bought and then you are being sold, right? And I've been part of both kinds. So when you're being bought, it means somebody or multiple parties are so interested in what you're building, uh, both in terms of product, as well as business and team that they are coming to you, uh, in many cases, unsolicited and trying to buy you out. So. Heptio would be a really good example. I mean, right in Seattle, right? So, you know, it was started by the two founder or two creators of uh, Kubernetes, um, Craig and Joe. And then, you know, they ended up building a fantastic team, fantastic product. They were already on the business traction side, but then they actually uh, had uh, signed the term sheet for their next raise when VMware came knocking. So that was a company that was in a, it's a very good example of that was bought. And I would say the founders and the investors, you know, all would like, the, you know, still you'd have some thoughts about what if, uh, if we hadn't sold and kept going, right? So there are you know, companies of that ilk, uh, which are great acquisitions, you know, could work out really well and so on. And then on the other end, there are companies that are, sold because for whatever reason, the company has hit a, in a brick wall, uh, not speed bumps. Speed bumps happen almost every week in a startup's life. So that's not material. It's more like a brick wall that you couldn't just break through for whatever reason. And then, you know, the company probably is not at a, uh, in a position to raise again. So you're trying to find a great, you know, um, buyer for that. So in those cases, I think what really works is um, for those kind of companies, you know, um, what I've seen working is like, usually they, if they have a strong partner, um, set of partners, so, you know, if they are working with one, two or three, you know, kind of larger companies that are already partnering with them. So in that case, you're really well set up to kind of land that company, uh, uh, at one of those partners. But look, I mean, I don't think like any founder or any investor kind of backs the company to be awkward to begin with, quite honestly, particularly the kind of founders we all aspire to work with, they are building a company not thinking about the exit so much, quite honestly. Uh, and those are the most fun type of teams to work with. They start a company not often not thinking about the financial returns at all. They start a company because they had a giant frustration about something. Um, and they kind of see that you know the world should be doing whatever it is doing in a different way and they are going to you know make that happen so i mean and i know you ask you're asking me about acquisition but it's sort of like when we fund a company you know we and the founders uh we're not thinking about acquisition as much um and we are also not thinking about exit as much quite honestly so you've also been board observer at digital ocean if i'm not wrong yeah. Uh, and I particularly like, uh, you know, as a developer, uh, I think DigitalOcean is like this unique small player. Uh, and, and this is my, you know, outsider perspective. Like you have this giant behemoths, you know, Microsoft, Amazons, and Googles doing cloud, but a lot of people don't realize that there's a smaller vertical player, which is DigitalOcean. Like if you can like see, there are very few full vertically integrated cloud plays, you know, right removing AWS and uh, the top three, right? 
so what 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 was your experiencing you know you know looking at that company closely that's a great question and i would say you know a uh, lot of investors will not even go down the path of you know finding a a pure cloud service provider taking on you know the big three right um so i'll tell you what really made digital ocean tick and that was probably in one word develop experience so when you when you come to when you come to digital ocean the kind of experience you get as a developer was very different um again i'm talking about you know few years back and obviously you know things change and you know um, so all of that but at that time it was very much very different kind of experience you would get with digital ocean that would almost compel you to use digital ocean even if you know your your whatever you know employer is using uh, you know azure or aws or gcp so that really drove their success and the team was maniacal about providing a great developer experience um so it was actually founded by two brothers um who came from uh, running like a sort of an isp kind of business so they were in a kind of they were really literally like in a turning the bolts on every server rack kind of people but they kind of came to build digital ocean because they believed the individual developer was not being served well by the big three cloud providers so that kind of drove everything they did and to this day i can guarantee you if you search for something like okay how do i install docker on you know this this kind of version most likely you will have a digital ocean you know content article pop up because what they did really well was instead of just you know marketing their service they said well let's just you know solve a developer's problem like what are the you know 50 different things every developer kind of struggles with let's go and really put out you know content and very thoughtful content about helping them so it started with that delivering a great developer experience really helping them and then yes you know building the business on the back of it i think that really stood apart i mean that made them stand apart from you know kind of any of the big three it was a tough space no question about it, it continues to be a tough space but you know the company went public uh, obviously and you know has done pretty well since then yeah i mean it's a very competitive space and I, i think not other than developers actually know about digital ocean i mean not you you talk to a retail investor and if they're investing in cloud like where do you invest where, where is the pure play cloud there isn't one then you have digital ocean lurking okay. around uh, in the background um but uh, i i also wanted to ask you about you know since you're very much focused on uh, technical software outcomes uh, what do you think about you know web3 as a technology and where do you see you know any technical problem because a lot of enterprise software you know as the problems that they're solving overlap with what web3 claims to you know solve one i can think of is maybe identity right mm-hmm. uh, you can say you know people in web3 will claim .eth you know the whole wallet thing will be the new layer of identity uh, and probably will re- replace opta or you know google's you know single sign on uh and you know there is also i forgot the company's name which is called i think internet computer uh, which aims to be sort of this cloud company but uh you know not controlled by a, a right. big company or a big tech company and you can hold the tokens and you know it will be a crowd owned pure play on um you know holding cloud essentially uh so i'm curious how uh, you addressable are thinking about web3 as a tech you do you see any specific use cases that are that are going to work or we haven't found out that yet so we are paying a fair amount of attention to web3 um and i would say you now with any big movement like that you now there are two parts to it the first part probably comes more on the consumer side uh, or at least the kind of the you know application side uh i think web3 is at the very early stage of that where the use cases the real use cases are still you know kind of tbd or emerging just about behind that first wave comes the infrastructure wave once you know applications are scaling you know then you kind of run into this kind of you know the problems and the issues that you need to you know build solutions for in the infrastructure so because web3 is very early even in the first wave the infrastructure wave is even earlier than that 
That said, we're actually already seeing some interesting um, infrastructure problems. I'll give you two. So one is around um, developer communication and alerting and things like that. So think about like what Twilio has done in the web you know, 2.0 world. Um, is there a play in web 3.0? Because you have these decentralized applications then how do you really, you know, kind of uh, help developers communicate with their end users through their apps? So it feels like there has to be a reinvention of Twilio for Web3. So that's a, a, an interesting angle. The other angle we have been, you know, kind of spending some time with recently is more like on the security side. Um, like there are a lot of use cases in Web3 that are sensitive from a security standpoint how do you you know build in you know, a kind of seamless frictionless solutions around that so those are like two areas you know that come to my mind um and then the third one i would say is you know uh that comes to my mind is is there like a you know is there like a abstraction layer on top of these different protocols that you know as a developer you kind of like you know write your program in uh, in one framework so that it automatically compiles to run on other protocols. So is there the, that, it feels like, and again, taking a step back, it feels like a lot of these uh, things are so early because the use cases haven't really emerged to a point that these are real problems just yet. Like no developer is thinking of, you know, running his or her application on more than one protocol really. So, but you can see that coming at some point. So yeah, I mean, we are, um, we went, I would say a little bit from, is this a real thing to yes, you know, it is happening to more like, you know, um, kind of trying to figure out, you know, what are some of the, you know, bets we should be making. But it's, um, I would also say this, you know, it's not something we, you know, kind of spend an inordinate amount of time just yet because, you know, it is in its very early inning right now. Uh, so we are almost at the end of our, you know, conversation, but I want to ask you one last question about, you know, we're obviously in a different uh, market in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I think everyone is talking about, him. Hey, the market has changed, uh, the uh, leverage shifted from the founder side to the investing side. Uh, what are you seeing out there in terms of like, uh, did the market change? Like uh, what is, uh, and how are you advising your, uh, your own portfolio companies at Decibel? Uh, talk to me a little bit about just, you know, what changed and what can we anticipate in the next uh, 24 months? Yes, I think what has changed, and by the way, this was, you know, long overdue or long time coming, right? You could see that. Um, you could see that market was getting out of whack with some basic fundamentals. So what you can see, particularly in the private side, is companies that were hoping to raise you know, what I would say, you know, I don't want to use the word outlandish, but in a kind of out of, you know, out of touch with reality kind of rounds at the CDE stages. I think that market uh, it has tightened up significantly. So I think, you know, if you're a good company, you still will raise at a really attractive valuation, no question about it. I don't think that is ever going to change, but there was a group of companies that were, probably just not ready for raising a $100 million Series C round, but could still raise it, you know, last year, just because. Um, I think those kind of rounds are definitely going to dry up. But look, I mean, we invest in the earliest parts of the market, right? And for us, five, seven, 10 years, you know, that kind of, those kind of periods are like our time horizons, right? Like in case of success, it's a 10 year time horizon easily. Right, so a turbulence in the market the last month or the over the next six months is like meaningless to us. So we yes, you know, we do pay attention. That would be like you know totally tone deaf. Um, we do pay attention to the what's going on in the public market. We pay more attention to the meat part of the market because some of our portfolio companies eventually will have to raise their Series Cs and Ds and so on. Right, and some have successfully done it already. Some are in the process. But for them, you know, we certainly coach. I think our coaching has been more like, make sure you're hitting the milestones uh, that will make the fundraising process 
happen almost by, on its own and not just you know, rely on some kind of irrational exuberance. But then on the earliest side of the portfolio, it's like they're just you know, so early that they will not even hit the market until the next bull cycle starts. So for them, it doesn't really matter. And if anything, you know, for them, it gives them a little bit of breathing room because their competitors are not raising just you know, boatloads of money without any real progress. So it just cuts out a little bit of noise for them. So I think, uh, but I'll tell you this, you know, some of the, you know, you know this, I mean, there was a chart I used to have somewhere, how many companies, great companies were built during, you know, kind of downturns in the market. By the way, I want to be very clear. We are far from there uh, in, in this market. It is not 2008. Um, there are a lot of great companies with very strong fundamentals. I just think that investors kind of got ahead of some of the fundamentals in the last two years, but uh, I don't expect a severe downturn myself at all. Uh, I haven't sold a single stock that I hold in the public market. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, I, I, I just think, you know, like a downturn is always a great time to build a company because you just have fewer distractions and, you know, more time and breathing space. And you can, I think everything uh, becomes easier except for funding. Um... Yes and no. Um, you know, it's sort of like, I'll, I'll tell you this. I mean, you probably have watched the movie Mask, Jim Carrey uh, movie, where, you know, whoever puts on the mask, like his or her kind of qualities get amplified. If it's a good person, he becomes even better which was Jim Carrey, if it's a bad person or villain, you know, his bad qualities get amplified. I think downturns like that, uh, you know, sort of like that, it's sort of a mask, meaning like, you know, good companies, you know, tend to uh, get even more attention and, you know, interest from investors. Whereas if you are a company that is not going to make it, yes, funding will be harder for you, for sure. But then that's why you will see more money or more funding interest flocking to companies that are actually working. Well, that's a good analogy to end the conversation with. Uh, and uh, yeah, really thanks uh, and appreciate you coming onto the show. Thank you for having me. And thanks for all the great questions, Nadraj.